Today I welcome Jane Ludden, Head at Lanes in London, and Dr. David James, Deputy Head at Lady Eleanor Holles in London. In this episode, I discuss the new Schools of Thought book, which looks at how different types of school with similar structured environments meet the varied and complex needs of students they teach. What impact technology has had on these different school models pre and post COVID? You have been writing, you have been co-authoring a new education book called Schools of Thought with Jane Lunnan. Why did you set out to write this book? And also, did it achieve the goals that you set out for it to do? Well, it has been complicated and COVID didn't help. The gestation period is several, it was three years ago. The idea came from, we just finished editing the State of Independence, but that was focused on challenges facing independent schools only, of which there are many and probably even more now. That came out just over a year ago. And then I started thinking about everybody is a critic. Everybody is an expert on education, probably because everybody is experienced it in some way. And there's not many experiences which has such universality. Everybody's been to school. People are invested in it viscerally if they're sending their children to school. Many people know teachers and so on. So, but how many of us actually know what schools are like today? We all have opinions about them and you only have to go on social media to see that people have very strong opinions about certain schools and certain ways of teaching. Very few people actually know a range of schools. They'll know the school they've been to, the school they work in, if they are teachers, but most probably the schools that they've sent their children to. And that's probably it. But that won't stop a lot of people having very strong views about faith schools or about how certain things like, I don't know, English or maths or science should be taught or how strict the schools should be or how we should have a uniform policy. So I started thinking about exploring other schools, you know, because as a deputy head, you, if you work at the senior management level in, in schools, you realize how complex they are, incredibly complex places to work in, more so, I would argue, than other organizations. And I've worked outside education because of the people that you're dealing with, the variety of people, and including, of course, young people, they are intrinsically complex places. And I was interested in how certain schools cut through some of that complexity by having a very clearly defined philosophy about one complex area, like gender or technology or well-being and so on. So that was the starting point. Firstly, what are other schools doing? How much do we know about other schools? And secondly, what about those schools that are doing things differently and in really fascinating areas? So that was the starting point. And then the next stage then was to approach schools that were doing those things differently. Jane. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Look, I was just asking David, why did you set out to write this book and did it achieve your goals? I suppose to you, it's how did you two come to co-author this book? There's lots of people who would want to contribute and, and write a book. How did you two decide that this is something you were going to embark on? So David and I have written another book in the past. So we've collaborated together previously. So I knew he'd be an amazingly patient and inspiring co-author. And indeed, the book that we wrote previously, which was called State of Independence, followed a similar format in terms of looking at really interesting schools and exploring what people connected with education, whether they ran schools or not, felt about key issues for our sector. So we are writers who very much like to lean into the voices of others in developing our own thoughts and opinions. And when David phoned me and said, look, would you be interested in getting involved in this project? Actually, I thought it would be really, really fascinating. 
And indeed it has been. Yeah. And this started pre-COVID, I understand, as an idea that you wanted to pursue. How have you found the longevity of the project to get it done? And did you at any point go, do you know, is this ever going to get over the finish line? Or were you dogged to go, no, this has to be told? No, we never once thought that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Both of those things are true. We both despaired at times of ever getting it finished, but were also really dogged and determined to do so. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, there is, it feels like, I think for all our lives, but perhaps very particularly in education, there will be that pre-COVID and a post-COVID. And so writing this book, right, literally as COVID hit, you know, has been a really interesting bridge between, frankly, very different educational environments. And so one of the things that didn't hold up the book, but made it more challenging, but also potentially more interesting, is how rapidly education was changing around us as we were trying to get hold of the ideologies, the philosophies, the visions that direct schools. David, did you feel that having gone through this process and written the book during COVID and post-COVID as you're looking to launch it, did you see any major changes in any of the educational philosophies or the schools that you were dealing with? You're almost like how you went into COVID during COVID and actually how you've come out. We had to write, as when you write a book, pitch an idea to a publisher and then they ask you to submit a sample chapter. So Jane and I, rather naively in retrospect, said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll write it on gender because that will be quite straightforward. We started writing that. And to answer your question is that in many of the areas that we've written about, and gender is one of them, things have changed so quickly in such radical ways that all schools have had to change and adapt how they approach that complex area. That's not to say that, of course, if we talk to a girls' school, or a boys' school, co-educational schools, they are still co-educational schools, girls' schools, boys' schools. But they've had to change and adapt their uh, approaches, sometimes their policies, sometimes their messaging around that. That was shifting all the time. It was really difficult to write about that particular area. Technology is another one. You know, no sooner do you start writing about technology than chat GTP and AI begin to emerge. Now, that's always the problem when you've got a a long lead-in compounded by COVID-19, that the issues that you're dealing with are going to change. But fundamentally, the schools that we've worked with have remained the same and true to their vision, but sometimes they've had to adapt because events change and they have to change with them. I would also say that I think when you have such a global paroxysm that, you know, convulsion that COVID was, in a way, everything changes. The very water that we're swimming in changes. And education has been such a mirror for that. So I agree with David, although the guiding philosophies remain the same, what education is and what education is for and how we approach it, I think those really massive existential questions about the business of education have been really significantly influenced by COVID. And so that changed the way we were having to ask our questions. And indeed, I think some of the responses that we got back. Something that you would have really found interesting was all the different educational systems and philosophies. I wonder, having gone through this process, have any of those different educational systems or philosophies made you adapt or adjust your approach to education at the schools you're at currently? In all honesty, every time you go and visit any school anywhere or you talk to any other head teacher or, you know, educationalist is doing something, you adapt a little bit or you absorb a little bit of that or you think, oh, that's fascinating. 
education is partly a process of magpieing, the kind of shiny things you can pick up from others. We were very deliberate in our choice of schools. We really sought to identify outstanding schools who were doing things that were really interesting. So I think it's fair to say that I certainly personally learned a great deal from every interview. Probably, Simon, it'd be a good idea to just briefly outline the structure of each chapter, because we interview school leaders from a range of different schools in, let's say, the faith schools. We talk to school leaders from a Muslim girls' school, actually, a Jewish school, Catholic school, and so on. And then what we do at the end of that chapter is we give a different perspective on the issues explored in that chapter. So in, in the case of the chapter on faith, we had Andrew Copson, who is the head of Humanist UK, talking about the need for secular schools. And so putting a counterpoint to that. And I think that you know, we learned from, so when Jane and I visited that Muslim girls' school in North London, I've never been to a Muslim girls' school in North London. It was really refreshing to talk to the girls and to talk to the staff about the pressures that they're under and also their relationship with their faith. And it wasn't just one view of that faith. It was a nuanced, different uh, perspectives on Islam. So that was really interesting. But then we also learned from those contributors who put forward other perspectives. So for example, in the chapter on technology, where lots of the schools are doing really interesting things around technology, we have a different perspective from the head of a school in Palo Alto, who has a lot of parents sending their children to his school, and the parents work for Microsoft, Apple, Google, etc. And they send their children to that school because that school has no tech. And his view on technology is really almost countercultural at times, although uh, possibly less so now than it was three years ago when we're asking searching questions about the use of technology, the impact that technology has in the home and in the classroom. So I think that we've learned an awful lot from school leaders in a number of different settings, but also from those other perspectives that sometimes ask difficult questions of the readers. Jane, you have the book with the sentence, how can schools as large, highly structured environments meet the varied and complex needs of the students they teach? Did the book answer this question? And did this process throw up any surprises or bust any preconceptions you may have had? Yes. Well, I like to think it certainly answered the question. And the answer was in all sorts of ways. What the book does is explore, you know, many, many iterations of really, really successful education, widely diverse, very, very different surprises and preconceptions. I mean, I was always perhaps most energized when we spoke to people. The thing that's always most compelling is people that have an incredibly strong vision and often a very original vision. Catherine Burble Singh obviously contributed to the book. She's she a very striking example of a leader, whatever your view on her position. She is so fastidious in ensuring that her approach is universal and works. And that was really, really interesting to me. So Ian Livingston, who has an incredibly energizing approach to IT in education and gamification of education, is very radical in his view about how wide a curriculum could be. I thought that was really liberating. And perhaps that definitely made me think differently about perhaps some of the restrictions that a standard curriculum can impose and whether or not you need how broadly we can interpret the word curriculum. That is something that I think we've been exploring. And some of the work that we're doing now in my school around developing a curriculum that's linked to AI was influenced by the freedom and the energy and the excitement that the likes of Ian Livingston represented. So maybe not so much preconceptions, but certainly energizing challenges. I'd add to that by saying that 
Anybody who has worked in schools for years knows how difficult it is to be something other than reactive. It's so easy to fall into the, the cycle of just reacting to stuff that comes into you all the time, the unexpected or, and sometimes the prosaic and the everyday it takes up a lot of time for heads and deputy heads and SMT and heads of departments. Whatever you think about the schools that we've approached and who have been brave enough, it would have been easy for them to have said, actually, no thanks, we don't want to be involved in this book. But to actually put their voices out there is that they have, each of them, a clear sense of what it is they want to do for their schools. And I think that shouldn't be underestimated. Irrespective of what you think about some of the schools, as I say, it's a brave thing to have that vision and to stick to it. And it's also admirable that they can do it when so much other stuff is coming in to them, trying to distract them. Jay mentions Catherine Burble saying, well, she's a prime example. But there are others in the book who also face possibly not so well-publicized challenges, but challenges nonetheless that try to knock them off that vision. I think it's fair to say that in this country, there is a sort of standard view about what education should be. And it's very focused on, you know, fairly set. Obviously, the government sets the curriculum broadly, a lot of child-centered learning. There is a kind of pretty universal agreement around what works best. So what this book does is challenge that slightly and say, you know what, here's a completely different way of doing it. That is also really working. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. You mentioned technology and AI and AI in not just education, but in all walks of life right now is a huge, huge topic. Is it clear how the different educational models have been adapting to this new paradigm? Do you think any particular type of school is faring better, whether they're girls, boys, co-ed, some of the faith schools? It may be too early to say. Only today, JCQ circulated their guidance to schools to set to examination centres on the appropriate or the acceptable use of AI. So that was yesterday from JCQ. I would guess that predictably, although it should be inevitably, the schools were the best resources and the schools with the staff who were trained and open-minded enough to engage with AI will react most imaginatively and constructively. I guess it's up to the senior management team and the heads to have a clear understanding of what it is they want. When the first wave of technology hit schools, it was down to the heads and leadership to know how to respond. But you know, I was teaching in schools where heads would proudly get up in front of the common room and say that they didn't know how to turn their laptops on. And, you know, and this was a pride of honor. Fortunately, those days have gone. There will be plenty of teachers and plenty of school leaders out there who don't yet know how to respond to AI, and understandably so. You only have to dip your toes into its use as a teacher to see how revolutionary it is. I would add that I think it's going to be the fulcrum around which the long-standing battle between tech enthusiasts and early adopters and you know people who are much more conservative and much more suspicious of tech you know, that battle has been going on a long time. And we have an entire chapter in our book focused on that, you know, educationalists who powerfully believe that is the way to be teaching children, and then those who believe quite the reverse. So I just think AI will just be another sharp focus for that long-standing debate. Yeah. And I don't know if you two follow sort of Gartner's hype cycles. What I love about the Gartner hype cycle, particularly around innovation, technology, you know, with it being its exponential growth, 
is that they talk about the innovation trigger and then we get to this peak of inflated expectations where everybody, the early adopters are racing ahead and we're trying lots of things, but we also recognize that we've still got people in the middle of all of this. And then it kind of drops dramatically into the trough of disillusionment where actually only the strong survive. And then it kind of goes into a slope of enlightenment until there's a plateau of productivity. And I've always referred because technologies change so quickly. We all get caught up with the magpie effect. Everything's shiny, everything new, everything's better. But is it better? We've got bias, we've got all those things. So it's a fascinating time. And I wonder when you kind of maybe rewrite the book, you know, the update, how different it may be. But yeah, that technology, as you both said, it's part of our lives. The hardest thing I find is teachers and their workload and mental capacity, their load, be able to shift and adapt and teach. But look, I mean, this is what to go back to COVID as the great catalyst. Honestly, in 2019, when David and I first sat down to scope out the book, we could not possibly have envisaged that, you know, in two years time, all teachers in the country would be used to using OneNote, you know, Teams, Zoom, and educating through that. And yes, that is the case. And the honestly, the transformative impact, not that, of course, most people now, almost everyone's gone back to teaching in person, but the reality is that's a whole profession worth across the world, actually, of educationalists who now recognize that they can connect and they can teach and kids can learn online. And that is so exponential. That is almost bigger than AI, frankly. What it means ultimately, well, education is naturally conservative as an industry, I think it's fair to say. Can I add a conservative postscript to that? Because what I don't want is, and I've seen it, you know, I inspect schools as well as do the day job. Unless you see technology in a lesson, it's not a good lesson. You know, you can have outstanding teaching. I don't think this can be said often enough. I've seen it this week where there is no tech in that class, but you can still see an outstanding English lesson, which is focusing on T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, for example, without using any tech, which is just there because the teacher really knows his or her subject, knows how to engage the students, and the students enjoy reading from Whisper It a page. And I think there's some research that is being done on how children learn and whether that knowledge sticks better, to use an ugly phrase, if they do read from a page as opposed to a screen. I know the research was published online last week, which uh, was, uh, was exploring this. So I think that that is, to use a, probably an outdated phrase, schools should be rainforests and not just plantations of learning. There should be many different ways of accessing learning, one of which is will be AI, as well as hopefully still a book. Yeah, because children need to be inspired and they're inspired by a person that has emotion, feeling, passion, interest that, you know, the other person, the students, they're kind of enthralled by, wow, this is something I'm really enjoying. And the technology is the lever, isn't it? It's the enabler. It's just another tool that you bring in and out. What we did lose and we're picking up the pieces, and again, the book explores that in the chapter on well-being. What they lost was that human interaction. They really missed being in the classroom with each other and interacting face-to-face with the teacher, that human warmth. Schools are inherently sociable places and a screen can't replace that. But it can supplement it. And I think that David's just brilliantly described his next A-level lesson. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly going to be teaching Larkin in a few minutes to a year 12 with a book and some pages and our brains in the space. If we were to project forward and imagine education in 20 years time, let alone 50, what we will find is so much more supplementary. So that we say, you know, what I envisage is, yeah, you might have whatever, let's say 
30 people in front of you in a gathering and you might have three or four different members of staff in the space doing the fire in the eyes thing, really lighting up the energy and the enthusiasm. But you'll also have people who are whatever dialing in from, you know, the East Coast of America or from Africa or from Buenos Aires, contributing to that lesson and being part of it. And I think we can all say, I think everyone would agree that no education works if there isn't personal human connection in a space and that it's really helpful if there is physical connection in a space. So I am not one of those people that thinks that remote schools will just be the answer. But I think hybrid education, where you supplement the hands-on physical connected experience with lots and lots of things coming in from online, I think that will be part of what happens. And I think that'll be unbelievably exciting, actually. Unfortunately, <laughs> 50 years time, I won't be around to see it. But <laughs> unless they found an AI solution to immortality. Well, I can definitely create an avatar for you, Jane, which kind of leads me on to, I'm always in awe of people in leadership positions that are able to craft time to go on a project such as this and to write a book. And it's not just your first book, it's your second book. How do you both, who are, you know, have extremely busy leadership roles at the UK's leading independent schools, how do you make time to get involved in this project with all the other demands on your time? How do you do that? I'm still in awe. Choose your family well to begin with, so that they're very understanding and accepting of those days in the holidays or after school when you just have to get on with something. And as a teacher, and however much you get promoted through the profession, you always retain a curiosity about learning and about education. It helps, and I think that we both enjoy writing. So that drives you on as well, because it is something that we both really enjoy. There have been times, of course, when we've both thought, oh God, you know, I just can't face another revision and note from the editor. But I also was aware that I didn't want to look back and think, well, we gave up on that project halfway through. We believed in the book. We believed that it was going to make a useful contribution to debate around education. And somehow, either getting up earlier or going to bed later or working on that Saturday, you get through it and you do it. And here we are. You do know when you do a project like this that you're going to give up some of that lovely time, which otherwise you would be spending you know, lying on a beach or walking across fields with your husband. So I need to give a lovely shout out to my incredible husband and kids. Yeah, that is a bit I sacrifice. But I also agree with David. I think education is for life. That is what it is. We are always learning. I am certain, I'm certain that it makes me a better educator and leader to stay in touch with what is happening in the sector, you know, and to meet other really inspiring individuals. So, and David said, choose your family wisely. I would also say, choose your writing partner wisely. I mean, honestly, <laughs> how we did it is that David just nagged me a lot. I should also note, if we're thanking people, firstly, I'll thank my family, but also this is the first book we did with Bloomsbury and Joanna Ramsey, our editor, really kept on track in such a supportive, gentle, but firm way. And it was difficult to argue with her when she asked us very nicely to meet another deadline and to okay another revision. An acknowledgement there that we did have a very good editor and a very good publisher who kept us on track and kept our spirits up as well. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.